inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And today we are answering all of your questions about anxiety. This could be related to panic attacks, hypervigilance, social anxiety, anxiety and therapy, you name it. Um, and if you are new here, we're so happy to have you. Please uh, share this podcast with a friend if there's anything that I've said that's helpful or any question that you think someone else could maybe benefit from the answer to it. Please share and please give it a review over on Apple Podcasts or wherever they allow you to do reviews. I think that's the only place, but that really helps. Um, without further ado, let's get into these questions. Now we have nine total today. And like I said, the theme is all about anxiety. Now, I want you to know that we have construction going on at our house. So if you hear banging, like, a, don't worry, Sean and I are safe. They are just working on our garage right now. So I've been, you know, try, I was like, I'll get up early and do this before they get here. Well, they got here at 830. So there was no, I, you guys know me. I'm not that of a, that much of a morning person. Okay, let's get into question number one. Now, this question says, hi, Katie. What is a, no, a healthy or quote unquote normal amount of anxiety to have around losing your job? I get great reviews at work and I even recently got promoted, but whenever I even make a small or insignificant mistake or I didn't do my absolute best, I get really hard on myself and start to have a probably irrational fear of being fired. I think my anxiety isn't all bad because it pushes me to do my best, but sometimes I wonder if my fear is in all likelihood outside of reality. Thanks. It's a great question. And I want you to know that you're, first of all, this got a lot of thumbs ups, but also just know that you're not alone. We have other members of our community who've actually reached out to me in other ways to ask this kind of same question. And when it comes to anxiety, the healthy or normal amount is actually what I would, instead of calling it anxiety, I'd call it stress. And the reason that a little bit of stress is helpful for us is like this person's saying is it it's motivating, right? If we don't have a deadline or expectations around let's say like you know, like let's say it's a work project. If we don't think that our boss is going to listen or it doesn't really matter, no one's going to see this, hear this, read this, whatever, we won't put in as much effort as we would if we know they're like in the room with us when we're giving the presentation or we know that this proposal is really important for the health of the business or the company as a whole, right? Without that stress or pressure, we might not be as motivated. We might not, you know, cross all our T's and dot all our I's. We can be a little more casual just because there's not as much at stake. And what's at stake could be not just uh, the business success, but it could be like what people are going to think about us, what we're going to think about ourselves, maybe it's like a promotion that we're up for, all that kind of stuff. So all of that can be motivating and good. And that's healthy. However, anxiety itself, which if you didn't know the definition of anxiety, it's uncontrollable worry. Now, this is in relation to generalized anxiety disorder, but I believe that applies across, you know, kind of all the types of anxiety disorders out there. And so if we have uncontrollable worry, that doesn't actually help anything. Again, the low level of stress is motivating. Uncontrollable worry is always detrimental because that key word, uncontrollable, meaning it, it often just doesn't even go away when the stressor goes away because it's not stress, it's anxiety. And it can come out of nowhere. 
doesn't always have a trigger. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Ugh. Right? It can be so such a pain in the ass. And so there's no real healthy amount of anxiety. Now, normal, I want you all to know that anxiety is the most common mental illness. I forget how many people it affects, but like in the US alone, it's like 30 million people. It's some crazy number. And I'm probably way off. You can look up the stats on your own. But anxiety is the most common mental illness. So you are by no means alone in your struggle with this. But when it comes to uh, the fear or anxiety around losing your job, to be honest, I don't think there's a normal amount of that either. I think it's normal to want to keep it and to try to do certain things to ensure that we keep it, right? Which I guess could be like the flip side of the fear of losing, which is like you just do your best. You show up on time. You get your work done. You ask for feedback. You take that feedback seriously, right? We do all the things that we can do. Also noting that sometimes there's like restructuring in large companies and just huge chunks of people get laid off. Like I was part of that when I was a sales rep years ago. I didn't end up getting laid off because luck of all lucks, my partner at the time was on medical leave. So I was like a solo person in this huge area. They weren't going to lay me off. But if there had been two of us, they might have laid one of us off, right? And so a ton of people that I knew got laid off in that round and it had nothing to do with anything other than the fact that they were making cutbacks. And so sometimes we don't have control over it. And let's dig into this a little bit because, and someone offered uh, an idea in the comments and I want to talk about that too. So I don't believe we should always fear losing our jobs. We can have a healthy appreciation for it. Again, I want to do things to keep it, but I think that's kind of like almost the the way that we're trying to view life is like, are we looking for problems? Like I'm going to lose my job. Oh my God. I'm like, we're looking for an issue, which our brain, if you didn't know, is wired to look for like negatives and threats. And this could be a threat right to your safety and security because we need the money. So we're wired to seek out threat and to pay attention to it. But I have a feeling now, this is just my hypothesis. I have a feeling we're a little bit hypervigilant in this. And I'm curious where it comes from. Now, here are just a few ideas of maybe where it could come from. People with hypervigilance, the most common, PTSD. Now, do I assume you have trauma in your past? No. But I'm just saying, if you do, that could be where this is coming from. Because we could just be um, like where our brain is always seeking out threat. It's kind of part of just how we're wired as people keeps us safe we're going to be doing that more so. So we're going to be looking and assuming there's threat where none really exists. That's essentially what hypervigilance is. We're extremely on edge and we almost think everything is a threat to us because if it in any small way reminds us of our trauma, it's hard for us to tolerate. So that's part of it, maybe. Another potential reason would be something to do with our self-confidence and our beliefs in ourselves. And I've talked about this in the past, and there's even a a question on this I'll get into later, how I believe that all anxiety is born out of a lack of self-confidence. Because if we think about it, the worry that comes along with anxiety, I'm going to do this wrong. That's not going to turn out. They're not going to like me. They're thinking bad things about me. I'm going to get fired. All of the worry is usually about things not going well for us or for those that we love or something dangerous happening, right? Now, all of that anxiety, you can see how the root of it, if it's not trauma related, could be and most likely is a lack of self-confidence. Because if we're confident in ourselves and our abilities, then we have this resilience built up where we know we can weather life storms. So 
instead of thinking, oh my God, I know they're talking about me. They're probably saying such nasty things. If we're confident, we're thinking, um, oh, those people look nice. I'm going to go talk to them. There would be no preamble, no assumption that they're thinking poorly of us or talking badly about us. We're, it, we ha- don't have any facts to support that, right? So we don't think about that. Or we have this confidence in our ability to do our job. We're not worried we're going to lose it. I'm good at my job. Why would I get fired, right? Um, so I think you can apply it in a million different ways, all in, su- like, not in support. That's not the right word, Katie. It's more like all... Uh, supporting my belief that the root of anxiety is a confidence issue. Now, that could be where this is coming from for you. Maybe there have been other situations in your life where you've been told that you're not good enough, or you've been fired, or you've, you know, were bullied at school, or you really struggled in school, or any number of things to make you think that you could possibly lose your job. That could be part of it. Or, um, it, it I mean, those are my two best guesses, to be honest, trauma-based or lack of self-confidence. And also as a, not even a third, but just as a side note onto one of those, sometimes I find that my patients who struggle with anxiety the most use it as a way to kind of distract from bigger issues. Meaning, I mean, I had a patient with a a raging eating disorder an eating disorder years ago. I almost stumbled over those words. I'm sorry. It's Monday for me. I'm recording this on Monday, even though I know it goes live on Thursday. Um, anyway, I had a patient with a raging eating disorder years ago, and she would focus all of her energy on her anxiety and wanting to work on that. And I, after seeing her for about a month, a month and a half, I was like, you know what? I think this like anxiety disorder that you keep trying to sell to me is actually just a distraction from your eating disorder, which is just a distraction from, you know, she had childhood trauma. And so sometimes we can have layers of these distractions or coping skills, even though they're not helpful, right? We call them maladaptive coping skills. There can be a lot of distractions and this could be a distraction. I'm curious about what's really going on. I'd encourage you to be curious. Remember, be curious, not judgmental or be a detective. I like to think of us as, you know, being a detective with like the the, the thing, the microscope, not microscope, but the, what is that even called? Why am I having, it's one of those days, you guys, a magnifying glass. I knew it'd come, in, it'd come to my brain soon enough. Um, but, you know, having one over your eye as you're detecting. I like to think of us as being detectives about our own experience because so often, especially, I mean, especially now, things are, life is crazy. There's a lot going on. We can become overwhelmed by our day to day and it can be difficult for us to actually tap in and acknowledge what's truly happening? What are we really feeling? What are we experiencing? What's going on? You know, and instead of just numbing out so that things like anxiety, depressive symptoms, suicidal thoughts, eating disorder behaviors, addiction, instead of having those things be these like red flags or like fireworks, be like, hey, something's happening. We can notice it ahead of time within ourselves. Hey, I'm not quite feeling like myself. I've been a little extra tired or hmm, I'm more tearful than usual, or I find myself wanting to isolate, or I'm finding myself wanting to reach out more. If things are different, it's important that we notice. And I know I'm getting off topic, but overall, I want you to be curious about this. When's this started? Like, has this been something that's happened for for a long time? Is it stemming from a lack of confidence? Is it stemming from, you know, a trauma in the past? And I also want to throw in, I guess, this third, and then we'll move on, this third potential option. It doesn't sound like it with the way that you're talking, but I do want to mention that, you know, delusions 
are real. People have those. If you don't know what a delusion is, it's a firmly held false belief. Now I know you're like, what the hell does that mean? It means that I believe something like I believe that, you know, I could lose my job and I have no facts to support this, but nothing you can say or do is going to change that belief that I have. And so I will always for a really long time think I'm going to lose my job. And you can say, Katie, you've gotten great reviews this month after this month. You've gotten your boss loves you. You just got a promotion. We have all these facts. You still believe it. Now, delusions are part of psychosis, which could come along with, I mean, depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, a bunch of different mental illnesses can have, we even have postpartum psychosis, like after you've given birth, um, we can go into a psychotic episode. And I know everybody thinks psychosis looks and feels a certain way. And yes, it feels out of control and we can feel like we're losing our minds, but a lot of, we don't talk enough about the delusions. And those delusions can be things that could potentially happen, right? And so it's hard for us. And mentally there's, it's like impossible for someone to convince us, but it can be hard for us internally to let it go. And so that's the final potential option. I would talk to your therapist about it, obviously making sure we're properly diagnosed. But again, I think this probably stems from the things we talked about, you know, prior to that. Okay, let's move on to question number two. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This question says, hi, Katie, and happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Says, how do I stop using avoidance as a coping skill for my anxiety? Ooh, good question. It's gotten so bad. It's a terrible cycle because when I get behind in schoolwork and housework, I get anxious and then I can't make myself do the work, especially when it's something that I really don't want to do. And I get further behind and then the anxiety grows. It's this horrible snowball, right? I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. So even if I'm able to muster enough courage to want to work one day, if I can't do it all, it's really hard to find the motivation to do it, um, do it at all. Gotcha. So if you can't find, oh, if you can't do it all the way, 100% to make it perfect, then it's hard to motivate. I know anything worth doing is is worth doing half-assed, but it's hard to internalize that. I understand. I've even started using avoidance for everything hard that causes anxiety, school, relationships, cleaning. It's led to skin picking as a way of avoiding my work and dealing with all the tension that I get from needing to do the work and not being able to force myself to do it. (sighs) It's a lot, huh? I get anxious and then I avoid it. And the more I avoid it, the harder the situation is. The, um, hold on. The harder, the harder the situation is, the more anxious I get help. I do usually get the thing done if it's for school, but it's only after lots of avoiding and stress. I don't want to only be motivated by emergency deadlines. It's so stressful. And sometimes I don't get it done on time because I've waited so long. The constant feeling of failing and being behind is making me really mad at myself as I keep putting myself in these situations that could be avoided by not, uh, avoided by not avoiding my work. And also I'm depressed because I fall behind and I'm usually doing really well in school. Also depressed as I can't do my work, but I also can't do anything else because my work isn't done like, um, 
Like I'll spend all my day trying to get myself to do the assignment or whatever, and everything else falls apart since I don't move until it's done. My house becomes a mess because I'm not cleaning. I don't sleep very many hours and I fall behind in my classes all the time or all the while. I just kind of procrastinate and feel anxious that I'm not doing the work I need to be doing. My anxiety, I think, is why I can't do the work. I just avoid it. The cycle leaves me feeling like I can't fix um like I can't fix it either since the solution is the problem in the first place. I totally get it. I would love to know your thoughts and advice for me. I'm also diagnosed with ADD if that's relevant. That's always relevant when it comes to procrastination and productivity. I don't know why I continue to do this or how to stop it. Sorry that was so long. Also, thank you for your podcast and everything you do. It's a bright spot in my week and I appreciate you lots. Hope you and Sean and Roxy are doing well. Love from Utah. Now, there were a couple comments on this as well. And we'll dig into those separately because they kind of take a different uh, a different path. But this is incredibly common. And that's why I think anxiety is something that we can struggle with for a really long period of time and not have any idea of how to get out of it, right? Because it feels like anxiety like breeds anxiety. It's like a virus, right? And then it's like everywhere. And it's like spread throughout our lives. And it's like, oh, we don't even know how to cope, right? Because it all connects. Now, when it comes to, I have a couple homework assignments that I want you to try because I have some tips on how to better manage this experience. Now, when it comes to ADD or ADHD, if any of you out there struggle with that, the interesting thing about it is, or I guess not an interesting thing, but a good thing to know or to remember about ADD or ADHD is that our brain just has like less I think it's dopamine and serotonin. I might be missing one, but I think it's just those two. And our and it becomes like um like a heat seeking missile looking for more of, you know, serotonin or dopamine. And so it looks for things that we enjoy, which is why those of us with ADD and ADHD, people often think, oh, you know, people with ADD just can't focus on anything. That's not true. We just have a tough time focusing on things we don't find interesting. Cause it doesn't we don't get that dopamine hit, right? We're like next. And so if we find something interesting, we can hold like we can zone in and hone in on it and spend hours working on a project, even if that project is something that isn't school related, right? We're just very into it. Um, and so anyways, I just want you to know that sometimes with ADD and ADHD, it's not that I honestly don't even like people call it a learning disability. I know not everyone uses that term, but I've heard it in schools over the years and I don't like that they call it that. It's almost like our brain just works differently. And instead of fighting against it with like, well, everybody learns the same way, which is bullshit, we need to work with it and find better ways to kind of chop up our day so that we can spend time doing the things that we find enjoyable. We can do those as long as we can to get through, you know, whatever that is. And for little bits of time, we do something we don't want to do. And I think that might be kind of compounding this anxiety issue. So I just wanted to bring that up in that way to maybe help you better make sense of that. But when it comes, so back to the anxiety and the stress and how this is like building because you're procrastinating and then you feel overwhelmed and how, what was the initial question? How do I stop using avoidance as a coping skill for my anxiety? It's normal to avoid things that make us anxious because why would we want to go towards something that causes us to feel overwhelmed and maxed out? It's normal to avoid. That's actually part of the reason why anxiety builds and people can um, 
be, have, be agoraphobic and struggle to leave their home. And social anxiety can isolate us as well. Because if we go out and we feel more anxious or we feel bad, why would we go out? Then if we, you know, or if this reminds me of that time I embarrassed myself in front of everybody, I'm just never going to go to parties anymore, right? Our world starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And we've just, until we avoided everything that we ever liked. And so I just want you to know that that's incredibly normal. And I have a few tools and techniques and things that I want you to try to do. Now, the first and the biggest, and this is like a, you're like, you want me to what? But I want you to find a therapist who does exposure therapy, because that's going to be the true, the true healer of this, because I'm going to give you some techniques to utilize for today. But we have to figure out where this is coming from. Where is this avoidance, this anxiety, this perfectionism? And I know because of comments below that we're going to get into, an eating disorder might be part of this as well. Um, But I'm not surprised. I've had a ton of patients with eating disorders that have these same, it's almost like the anxiety and the eating disorder are just all these different coping skills. Then we layer the avoidance on top of that. But what's the root, right? We're going to need to be in therapy to figure out what that root is. Is that root trauma-based? possibly. Is that root? Um, you know, I, I mean, again, it'd be trauma-based, but it could be more specific. Like, did we have a narcissistic parent? Um, did we feel like we had no control? Did we move a lot as a kid? And so we never really felt like we had a, a safe foundation. Um, so we're always seeking out that control experience or that feeling of like that I get to do and get to choose and all of that. Like, where is it coming from? And I think some of the work that you're going to want to do in therapy is going to be on figuring out why we have these coping skills, um, because they exist for a reason. And so we have to be curious as to why that is. So there's that component. And that's the real like crux of the work and what I would encourage you to do. But when it comes to like help now, like a technique you can use now, I want you, there's, there's like two parts to this. Now, the first is I want everything you turn in for the next week to not be perfect. I actually think if it's perfect, it's wrong. So you don't get my approval if it's not, if it's like, I don't know, more than 85% good. Okay. I know that sounds crazy. My therapist used to do this to me too. It sucks. And it's hard for those of us who like things to be perfect. Uh, spoilers, perfect doesn't exist. It's all made up in our head, but I want things to not be. And if they are perfect, they're wrong. And I actually don't approve. Okay. I know that's some kind of like reverse psychology bullshit, but it does kind of help. Okay. So there's that. Now, the second thing is, is I want you to set timers more. And I want you to, instead of feeling like you have to do everything at once, I want you to do things. It's kind of up to you. You're gonna have to let me know. Now, the average person can focus for like, I think it's like 45 to 90 minutes. I know that's a huge chunk of time, but it just depends on the person, right? But giving our focus to something for like 45 minutes, it's gonna probably going to be too much for you, especially because now I know you're diagnosed with ADD. So maybe we focus on something for 20 minutes. If that feels like too much, do 10. So we're going to, I want you to break things down where you have like, let's just do 20 minutes because it's an easy round number. 20 minutes on, 10 minutes off, 20 minutes on, 10 minutes off. And I want you to do this throughout your your days to get certain things done. And in those 20 minutes where you have to focus, make it something like maybe one of the 20 minutes is something that you really don't want to do. Then the next 20 minutes is something that you do want to do. So let's say I have a speech to write, because I do, and a podcast to film, and I need to gather questions for the podcast ahead of time but I also really want to take my dog for a walk because it's nice out and it's not that hot. And then 
I also really need to do my Spanish lesson on Duolingo. Okay, so I have all these things, right? So write down all the little things that you need to do during your day. And there's a lot of other shit. I also should probably do laundry. I need to unload the dishwasher. Write all these things down, all the things. Then put them into slots of things I love to do, which might be nothing. That's okay. Things I don't mind doing. So love to, don't mind to. Things that I have to do and things I hate doing. I want you to put them into their columns. Now, and you might have one in there that's like things that are neutral where you're like, whatever, like unloading the dishwasher. I don't know, might not bother you at all. And then I want you to divvy these things up. So what time of day do you operate best? I know this sounds crazy, but it's something to think about. I do not operate my best from like 8 a.m. to maybe like 10. So those two hours, like... I'm like going through emails, trying to go through messages and like do my best, but I am not my best. And I also don't operate really well late at night. So catch me after 10 p.m. No, thank you. I'm not going to be at my best. So there's quite a window in there, but I find I do my most productive work between about noon and 4 p.m. That's my sweet spot. So you know what I put in that time slot? The things that I really don't want to do because I am more primed and ready to focus. So consider it for you. Maybe you're an early bird. Maybe you're a night owl. Consider where where your window is of where you operate best. And I want you to put the thing that you hate in that window, 20 minutes, 10 minutes off, right? Then the next 20 minutes, again, we're not going to go like shitty thing to shitty thing. Then maybe put a neutral one in there. And I want you to slowly like put your day together where when you're not productive, like in the morning, I should do things that are just either blah or that I love doing makes it easier building up into things that I like have to do the things I hate doing and then things I like doing again or things that aren't so bad and structure it. Obviously give yourself like your breaks for lunch and things like we're not robots, but doing that I find, especially when we have anxiety or perfectionism or ADD, helps us at least structure things so that when we've hit that 20 minutes, you can obviously work longer if you're like in the middle of something, you don't have to stop. But in your mind, I want you to say, I did that great. That was exactly what I was supposed to do. Amazing. Thumbs up. Now, again, if you do everything perfectly, I don't approve, but I just want you to work your way through the things that you need to get done, like cleaning and schoolwork. But then there's also fun things like calling a friend or playing a video game or playing Candy Crush or whatever it is that you like to do watching, you know, a show on TV. Put those things into your schedule so that not only will you feel productive because you check that box, but it's also in these structured times so that you don't feel like you, it's just endless, right? Because sometimes we forget that we can only have seven things on our to-do list in a day. That's all our brain can actually hold and think about at the same time. That's why phone numbers minus the area codes are seven digits. Um, it's easier for our brain. And so we have to work again with our brain instead of against it. And one of those things on the list cannot be like finish a senior project that's supposed to take like six months, right? I can't put on my list, you know, uh, film eight videos or some shit. Like I'll have to do that over the course of the next few months, but... I can put, you know, consider video about what am I working on right now? Oh, uh, more narcissism content. So I can be like, finish love bombing uh, script. That could be a to-do today or uh, rehearse a script or, uh, you know, read, finish reading that book about narcissists. Uh, there's certain things I can put in there, maybe a chapter, not a book. Let's be realistic. But these have to be things that you can finish in a day and preferably it'd be even better if you can 
break them down into like what you can finish in an hour or a half hour or something like that. So we can check those boxes and move our way through, help us feel more motivated. Also, we'll get things completed that need to be completed and also enjoy our days because it shouldn't just be all work, no play. Okay. I think that was it. I know that I said there are like two, pro- I like went through everything without breaking that up, but I hope that that's helpful. Therapist with exposure therapy, figuring out the root of what's really going on, breaking our days into, you know, structures like that, taking breaks, um, all of that could help. Oh yeah. And then the not perfectionistic thing, like if it's perfect, it's wrong, which is hard. Um, but that's what I had to do in therapy. And I have to tell you, it helped to know that I was like going against my therapist. If I work, if I did try to make something just perfect, I think that's part of the reason why I don't like drawing and stuff. Cause it like never turns out the way that I like. Okay. I could go off on a tangent. Let's get into the comments because there's also more stuff to talk about here. Now, the first comment says, yes, I have such a problem with avoidance. School made me so anxious that I would skip classes and it would make my eating disorder worse, et cetera, just to avoid going. And I eventually switched to homeschooling. I avoid close relationships too. As soon as anyone starts to get too close to me, I ghost them and then shut off completely. What can I do to get over this issue with almost avoiding everything, even slightly difficult things that life throws at me? Okay, so how do we stop avoiding everything? Now, it sounds, so we have an eating disorder, we have anxiety, and now we have avoidance. Again, I just have to bring it back to, these are all maladaptive coping skills. It's ways of us numbing out. There's something bigger going on here. What's happening? Tell me a little bit about it. When did this start? How long has it been going on? What are, like, do we have any ideas of the root? Do we think it's trauma-based? Do we think it, you know, is it some sense of control because things in life felt out of control? Like, what are we getting from all of this? Because it, ex- it exists for a reason. And if we don't, if we don't address that reason, it's going to continue. And so paying attention and recognizing why you're doing it, because it can help just to understand when, like, are there certain specific instances where it gets real bad? It sounds like, um, you know, anxiety with school, relationships, maybe people getting too close. Are we afraid we're going to get hurt if people get too close? Are we afraid if people get to know us, they won't like us? Where is this coming from? Is it confidence-based? Is it trauma-based? What is it? Because we can't, I know we always want to look out at these symptoms and say, oh, I want to fix that. But there's always a core reason. And we have to be curious about that not judgmental about our situation, right? We're all doing the best we can with the tools that we have. Right now, unfortunately, our tools just happen to be avoidance, eating disorder, and anxiety. And until we figure out why these things are coming up so strongly, we're not going to be able to fix them. Because then, so moving on, so once we've understood that it's a coping skill, then we recognize, you know, or identify rather really like when we're doing it and what triggers it most, then we can put in place some other coping skills to try to help regulate, like a full body shake, doing some breathing exercises, some maybe just some stretching and exercise. Maybe we connect with someone that we truly know and who loves us. Maybe we journal a little bit. Maybe we get into therapy and, um, you know, practice some new communication skills and ways to assert ourselves or whatever it is that we're kind of needing, right? Um, it's going to take some time. It's like we're building a new muscle but that's okay, right? We're all works in progress. We don't like how this is making us feel. And until we can 
change, you know, change it little by little. It's not going to be perfect. We're going to have slip ups, but I want you to try, try again. And so that's how we can get over those issues. We have to realize why we're doing it and try some new coping skills. And if you're looking for coping skills, because I know I say that a lot, I have a video, maybe I should do a new video on it, but 25 coping skills, just look up 25 coping skills, Katie Morton on YouTube. You'll see the video. I have process-based ones and distraction-based ones. And then the comments are filled with others. So you can check that out. Now there's another comment on this that says, Katie, could eating disorders be in some kind of correlation with avoidance? 100%. The only weird thing is that when I'm avoiding my work a lot, I restrict less oddly, which to my therapist's dismay makes me question if it's even an eating disorder since when the going gets tough and I'm really deep into avoidance, the anxiety, oh, avoidance, anxiety, and depression, I don't really even use restriction as a way to cope at all. I let go of it completely because it's too hard. But after I feel more in control of myself and I'm not behind in schoolwork and I'm not avoiding as much as I tend, oh, and I tend to restrict more. Look at that perfectionist in you. Sometimes I can use restricting as a way to white knuckle and force myself to stop avoiding and do hard things. Like it gives me some kind of control over me and how I feel. I don't know. That sounds, that sounds like you're onto something. I don't know if this question is related enough. Can you explain what's going on there and how I can fix it? And if there's a correlation between eating disorders and avoidance and anxiety and how to deal with it? I don't, I didn't think they were related, but hearing that you had the same experience, oh, because they're talking to someone else in the comments, um, has made me suspicious. Okay. Now, um, I love this question. Yes, eating disorders can be correlated to avoidance because eating disorders are coping skills. They're numb outs if our eating disorder isn't doing enough for you, which it sounds like sometimes it's not, the going gets tough. Our eating disorder isn't the coping skill we want. We reach for something else. We avoid. I don't think, I think you have an eating disorder. Um, might even bring this up with your therapist and tell, say like, I talked to this strange therapist online and she thinks it's still an eating disorder. And the reason that I don't select it is because it doesn't help me as much as something else. We, They're just coping skills, right? Eating disorders, avoidance, anxiety, sometimes depression symptoms, they're coping for something bigger, something else going on with us. And if I reach for that one and it doesn't give me the uh, relief or the alleviation of my symptoms, then I'm not, I'm going to set that one down. I'm going to grab another. And so that's what's happening. You let go of your eating disorder when you're really not feeling good and you go into deep, deep avoidance. So avoidance in some ways, I think would be one of your top unhealthy coping skills. Below that's probably eating disorder and below that's probably anxiety. And then it's funny because that after when you feel more in control, then the eating disorder kicks back in because the eating disorder thrives for you in giving you this sense of control and this perfectionism, this all or nothing black or white thinking. And so when you feel a little bit of that, it triggers eating disorder and poof, it pops back up and helps you uh, take that little feeling of control, harness it. And feel like it's applying to your entire life. And it can probably, in some ways, be a little bit motivating, as unhealthy as that sounds. There's a reason it, your eating disorder stuck around, right? Um, and let me just look through. I want to make sure I didn't forget anything in here. So yes, it can be correlated with avoidance, just coping skills. We're just trading one for another. Um, after I feel more in control, not behind. Yep, we tend to restrict more, of course. We're all or nothing. When, you know, so that's when you want to be perfect. Everything perfect. Um, gives me some kind of control over how we feel. Of course. Yes, you are right. You're, you're onto something here. Um, 
okay, so what's going on and how can I fix it? Is there a correlation? So I think there's a correlation. And to be truthful, going back to kind of what we've talked about, it's all to that root issue. So yes, we can say like, oh, I want to work on eating disorder. Oh, I should work on avoidance. Honestly, it doesn't fucking matter. We need to figure out if it's uh, self-esteem related, trauma related. Uh, Is it giving us a sense of control and it doesn't happen to be linked to a trauma? Like, where is this coming from? Why is this happening? Are there certain times when it's worse than others? Where, what is that? Do, what's the trigger? You know, are, are, can we see any patterns? And that's something you can bring up with your therapist too. They can help you see those patterns. If you can just ask outright, if you feel comfortable, you can say, I don't understand. I, I understand I have all these coping skills and I know that this one applies when I have these issues and this is better useful when I have these issues. But like, I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know the triggers. Have you seen any patterns? Like in your notes, do you remember when I last felt this shitty? Like I did last month. You know, we need to look for things like that. And maybe like, for instance, I'll give some examples. Sometimes when we spend time with people that are bad to us, maybe it's a past abuser, maybe it's just a toxic relationship. If we have to spend a lot of time with that person, that could be directly correlated with afterward us kind of going into this pit. Or maybe it's when we get really stressed at work and we don't have time for all of the self-care stuff that we need. Maybe it's when we get reprimanded at work for doing something or not doing something. Maybe when something uh, for some reason feels out of our control, like we thought that we would have enough time to do something and then the deadline changed. We're like, fuck, and it's out of our control, right? We don't get to decide that deadline, but now we have to adhere to it. Does that make it worse? Like, just be curious about, is it even seasons? I have a lot of patients who have seasons of mental illnesses, which I know people would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Isn't it just supposed to happen all the time? No, summers can be worse for us. I have a lot of patients who find summer to be incredibly triggering, especially eating disorder stuff, because we can't really hide under clothes and, you know, hide out in our house as much. People are out more. It can be hard. So ask your therapist if they notice any patterns and you also be a detective and see if there are any patterns. Now, there was a final question on this, and I think, yeah, says, I have a similar problem. I would be especially interested in how to deal with avoidance when the thing you're avoiding is something you need to focus on when the anxiety makes you so dizzy and unfocused, you just don't seem to be able to do the thing. It just feels impossible or it just seems impossible. So avoidance, again, I know we want to like go right to it and be like, I just want to stop avoiding this. How come I can't just do it, right? We talk such shit to ourselves. Why can't I just do this? It's a bigger issue. And so again, my advice is to figure out what the common thread of this avoidance is and what we think the root of it is. And then we're going to have to find some coping skills to calm our system as we push ourselves to not avoid. And that's like baby steps. That's like exposure therapy. I'm slowly, you know, putting myself in a position that would usually cause me to run the other way and avoid, but I'm going to slowly expose myself to that trigger and then use my skill. So I feel okay. (sighs) Okay. Try it again. Right. We're going to do that. And that, that work is hard, but it's completely doable and something that we can make happen with our therapist and with some good, healthy coping skills. Does that make sense? I hope so. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie. I know you've talked about something something similar not too long ago, but I am still wondering about anxiety surrounding therapy. It can be so anxiety producing. I have so much of it. Outside of session, all I can do is think about the few moments that I embarrassed myself. Isn't that wonderful? Anxiety is such an asshole. Or said something in a stupid way. I'm wondering what my therapist thought about me. In session, I get so anxious too. 
I know this is normal, but it's to the point where I can't even respond. Or sometimes I'll be sarcastic, which is even worse. I also get so anxious that she just doesn't believe me. I avoid talking about my eating disorder completely because the anxiety around it and her not believing me is so much. The therapeutic relationship is amazing and she's a perfect fit for me. Yet therapy makes me so unusually anxious that I would love insight. Thank you. Therapy can be wonderful and amazing and healing. However, it can also be incredibly anxiety producing. I mean, just think about it. And I just say this to validate your experience because think about it. We have to go in to see a stranger. We pay them. And we dump things and say things that we never maybe say out loud, maybe not even to ourselves, or things that we don't even want to admit, or things that happened in the past that we are so filled with shame about that, like, we don't want anybody to know, right? And we go and we just dump all this stuff with, an again, a stranger that we've paid, and then we leave. Oh, that's weird, right? It's, What? It can make us feel extremely anxious. We can, especially if we already have anxiety, which it sounds like the person who asked this question already has anxiety. Then of course, the thought of going in to tell someone about all the shit that we're embarrassed about or upset about is going to make us more anxious. And then what if they don't believe us? And what if they're judging me? All that like social anxiety talk where we're like, oh my God, they're talking about me. Oh my God, they saw that. Oh my God, I, I had something on my lip and nobody told me, oh, you know, or something in my teeth. And we can just spiral out really quick. My advice is if there is any way in between sessions or even at the beginning of session, we're going to have to find a way to communicate what you're telling me. So we don't have to tell them all the shit we've done that we're embarrassed about. We don't have to even tell them that we have anxiety. We don't have to be able to verbalize it just yet. But I want you in some fashion to say something to the effect, whether we email it, text it, write it down in, in a letter and hand it to your therapist. I mean, if you can find a way to print it. I know not everybody has printers anymore, but write it down by hand, rip it out, give it to them. Something to the effect of, I need you to know that I feel so anxious in session and I don't know how to talk about anything because my anxiety gets so high. That's all. That's all we need to say. You could even just print out this question that you asked. Say, hey, I asked this to this therapist online and she told me to tell you. You could say that too. Any way you can do it because it's hard. I know it's hard in session to get the words out. So sometimes that's why emails in between session, if they allow it or texts or calls, calls I know are hard. So let's just nix that already because I know you just cringed. But finding a way to get that information over to them is going to be key. Because if they don't know this is happening, they can't help you better manage in session. For instance, if I have an anxious patient who I know is struggling to tell me anything about what's going on, then I'm not going to open the session in the way that I normally do, where I say, catch me up on your week. How are you doing? You know, blah, blah, blah. Or like, what brought you in? I'm not going to ask that question. Instead, I'm going to say, today, I wanted to work on X, Y, or Z. How does that sound to you? Let me tell you a little bit about what that is. And I do this as a way to kind of let them get in the in my space, right? In my office, kind of relax a little. Because if I put them on the spot right away, some of my patients just shut down or dissociate or have a panic attack. There's a lot that can happen. And so to try to like buffer that, I do the talking first and I try to keep it educational so there's some distance between how they're going to experience it and, you know, uh, what I'm asking them to do, if that makes sense. So it's not such a, I'm not diving in right away. That can shut us down, be overwhelming. And so letting your therapist know can give them an opportunity to come up with some things like this. 
And if there is something that they're doing in session that you find like shuts you down, let them know it's okay. We don't have an ego about the way that we practice therapy. I'm doing my best to help you. And if something I'm doing is upsetting or just not helpful, I want to know. So letting them know, I think will be really, really key and really healing and, and hopefully make it more helpful. Okay. Now, um, yeah, because like the fact that you can't talk about your eating disorder, we need to be able to do that. Maybe not all at once, but we just need to let her know that this is happening and find any way to tell her that this is happening. Now, um, are there any other questions on that? The, there was a comment on this and it says, yes, this exactly. To add on, how do you deal with this anxiety in session? I feel so stupid about all the things that I'm worrying about and just keep thinking that I'm wasting their time. I've just started with a new therapist and she says that I'm kind of closed off, but she doesn't think it's intentional. How do I overcome this? I feel like it's just easier to keep people at a distance to avoid feeling anxious and embarrassed. Any advice would be helpful. Again, we have to find a way to tell our therapist that we're feeling this way. I know we often think, and it's probably my fault that like partially my fault for the way that I've communicated about therapy over the years. Yes, we want to get into therapy and tell them as much as we can. However, that might be just us talking about what's come up for us because of therapy. That's like half of the therapeutic process is just letting our therapist know, you know, every time I come in, I just feel so stupid. I mention all these things that I'm embarrassed about or anxious about, and I think I'm like overreacting and I feel like this is stupid. And then I'm like, I'm wasting your time and I'm wasting my time. And I just, right. And we can just let them know. We don't have to have any answers. We don't have to understand why this is happening. We just have to let them know our experience. I think that's really key. That's really the the most vital part of therapy is just being able to tell our therapist in some way, email, text, writing it down, or saying it if we can. But finding a way to communicate our experience is going to be the most beneficial. Because again, to me, as I read through this, like we clearly have a lot of judgment, feeling like we're wasting time, which is probably why we're cut off and like shutting down a little bit. It's protective because we're puffer fishing, right? We feel really soft and squishy and vulnerable. We don't like that. Spine's out. Ugh, shut it down. And so letting them know that this is happening will then slowly allow us to, to work through it. Because again, the, the way to overcome this avoidance is to first understand it, right? We have to, where is it coming from? What's the root of it? What triggers it most? You know, what are, what are the thoughts that I have? We can even notice some of those same thoughts we have like over and over and over. And then we're gonna have to, you know, come up with some new coping skills to help us calm our system, whether that's again, journaling, body shakes, petting an animal helps to coloring, talking to a friend, any number of things. And then we're gonna have to expose ourselves a little bit to that thing that makes us anxious. Like, so in session, we might want to have silly putty on hand or have our therapist do a full body shake with us or whatever. We can do those things in session periodically so that we can keep going and we don't shut down or close off. Okay. Now there's a final, oh no, there's two more. Sorry, not final, two more. This one says, yes, I think a lot of it is the fact that someone is paying so much attention to you. Yes. Anxious people hate attention. I can tell you that. And what you say and do. I also feel really anxious about saying things that I wanted to address with my therapist. He asked me when there's silence or a subject is finished, what are you thinking of? And I almost never have the courage to tell him. I've, I've never asked a patient that. It's kind of funny because I, I fear it would just shut them down. 
or I change my things so they sound more vague and not as bad. I know he'll be very supportive no matter what, but it's still so hard. Why and how can I get that to go away? The great question. It's the judgment that, again, anxiety being born out of a lack of self-confidence. You can see that core here, right? Because we're so afraid of what he's going to think, the judgment, or even just the assumptions we have, or the beliefs around what we need to say, the the worry of how that's going to impact him or us or the relationship is so much. We're like, nope, absolutely not. And so the reason is it's protective. It's a defense mechanism. We're using it to protect ourselves. And the best way to get it to go away, again, is to let him know this is happening. Again, you don't have to say the things. It's talking about your experience or the process, not saying the things. So it's essentially telling him what you told me. You can say, you know, a lot of times you ask me what I'm thinking of, and I know what I'm thinking of, but I feel really anxious about saying certain things. And then I don't want to tell you, I'm afraid you're going to judge me. And then I try to make it be vague or not as bad. And then uh, I never get it out. Again, we don't have to have answers. We don't have to tell them the thing that we're struggling to tell them. It's about the process. Because then if if you had told me that and you were my patient, I'd have questions. I'd be like, well, thank you for telling me. And and I'm sorry that we're experiencing this. Are there other parts of your life where you struggle with this too? You know, usually at work or school or in other relationships. Yes, yes, yes. This has happened before. Maybe not, but most likely there are other ways. And I'll ask about that. And we'll try to dig into like what the triggers are. Again, we're going to try to identify what's causing this, any patterns, is it certain subjects or is it is it just therapy itself? Is that shutting you down? You know, I'd have a lot of questions because all of that's going to help us better guide those coping skills, better guide our work together. And also it's going to challenge me to ask questions in a different way because I've talked about this over the years too. Instead of just trying to walk in the front door, as a therapist, we often have to find like that loose window in the back of the house that we can kind of jimmy open to get in. And that's how we can get in and have our patients allow us into their world. We have too many defense mechanisms. You know, a lot of my patients have like a whole moat and like a big gate that comes down at the front. I'm not getting in that way. And so I have to be very creative about how I ask questions as to not trigger all the defense mechanisms. Um, But again, that's not your responsibility. That's the therapist's responsibility. And that's why therapy in some ways is kind of like an art form because we have to be really creative. Now, the final question on this is, as an add-on, how do you deal with anxiety specifically at the beginning of session? My therapist always asks, how are you? And the anxiety holds me back from starting to talk. Like I said earlier, I Try not to ask those questions if I know it shuts you down. I think, again, what could be helpful is you letting your therapist know that you're too anxious to talk at the beginning, if they could, you know, maybe start the sessions softer. And sometimes I'll tell some patients a little bit about like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll like talk about the weather or if it's not an eating disorder patient, like what I had for lunch or, oh, what a lovely day or, you know, well, I'll, I'll, there's just random shit, a nice jacket you've got. Like I'll talk about small talk shit at the beginning and then give them some space, you know, and uh, tell them what I want to work on. And I, oh, I printed out some worksheets. You want to take a look at these? Hmm. And it, we just, I kind of just chitty chat. And then I'll follow up sometimes. Like, remember last week we were talking about blah, 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 and I had this homework assignment for you and yeah, da, 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 and I'll check in on that. I usually do homework check-ins anyways at the beginning, if there is homework to check in on, which you know me, there most likely is. Um, but I do that first and that can sometimes take the edge off. Like I said, let you get settled. Because there's something about like getting into the office, like after you've, I don't know how your guys' works, but my therapist over the years, I like, if I've already seen them, I've already filled up paperwork. I just, I go in and flip the switch. You like read a magazine or 
look at my phone um, for a while until they come in, out to get me. And then you go in and it just takes you a minute to like settle. And so I always try to give people that space to settle. And so let your therapist know that you know, you find the beginnings of sessions hard and telling them how you are, it, it's like you shut down um, and ask if they can do a, a softer start for you because that could really help. Okay, let's move on to question number four. This one's a short one. It says, Katie, you always say that the root of all anxiety is a lack of self-confidence. Can you elaborate on what you mean by this? I feel like actually I kind of talked about this earlier, but all for this for the sake of this question, let's go through it one more time. Now, because anxiety is that uncontrollable worry. We worry what people think. We worry about how we're going to be perceived or if we're going to do this well, or is this all going to fail? Is something bad going to happen, right? Is something bad going to happen to someone I love? If we consider all of those scenarios, we can always link it back to a lack of self-confidence. Meaning, and I know we think of self-confidence as just my ability to, to like go out into the world and feel good about myself. It's not just that. Confidence comes in like, my ability to make decisions, my ability to choose what's best for me or those that I love, or my ability to to go and do the thing that I, I need to do, right? It's that, um, you know, stand up for myself, speak up for myself. It, it goes back to just being able to do things without uncontrollable worry. I want to try to keep this short so that we can, you can hear it, but that's why I believe it. And I I stumbled upon this and research about this when I was doing uh, work for my anxiety workbook. You guys, I if you don't know, I have an anxiety workbook. It's for sale. I You can buy it over on my website, katiemorton.com. But anyways, I was doing a bunch of research for that workbook. And if you didn't know, this is like the third iteration of it. I've done a bunch of edits and tons of videos about it. And I've just done a lot of work because anxiety is so common, right? And I wanted to better understand it. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized that it stems from this lack of self-confidence. And yes, that sounds like a simple answer to a complicated question, but confidence isn't an easy thing to untangle, right? It could be trauma-based, right? Trauma is shame, blame, guilt, and embarrassment, and not one of those things gives us confidence. It actually takes it, right? And so if we think about that, just be curious about it. And there's a lot of research to support that, you know, as much as we can with like psychological research. I think the the like proof of it is is really if we're if we're honest about our experience and they always have people fill out questionnaires when it comes to psychological research, if you don't know, especially, you know, when it's like clinically based like this, like person to person, um, you can see how like if we track back our anxiety or if we just even if we've already been diagnosed with anxiety, then you take those people who have anxiety, you put them in another group where they are ranked and rated and fill out questionnaires about self-confidence and you can see the correlation. Um, but I'd be curious from you, like if you really think about it, do you agree or disagree? Because just like anything, research can show us one conclusion, but that doesn't mean it's your experience. Everybody's different. But that's really why I believe and in my experience with my patients and talking with you all online, that's why I still believe that the root of all anxiety is a lack of self-confidence. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, when I was really struggling with anxiety three years ago, I had a really bad panic attack in front of my therapist because she was asking me questions about the scary situation that I was in. And it was just too much for me. I'm so sorry. That's something can be so triggering. I was shaking on the couch and she rubbed my back and helped me through it. I eventually got, got out of the scary situation and now things are better. I still think about that day and I used the memory to fall asleep at night because the way she helped me was really comforting. Makes sense. 
What do therapists think about when their client is having a panic attack? Are you able to see it coming on? Does seeing it give you enough helpful information? And why do I still remember this event as clearly as the day as though it happened or as the day it happened, even though it happened years ago? I remember the clothes I was wearing, the words she was saying, and where everything was in the room. Okay, lots of questions to break down here. Now, first of all, what do therapists think when their clients are having a panic attack? If I'm being honest, my thought is shit, shit, shit. How can I help them? And I try to run through, if we haven't talked about this before, even more shit, shit, shit. But hopefully I've already talked with them a little bit because not everyone wants physical touch. That can be extremely triggering for many of my patients. Some love it, some hate it. It's important that we talk about it. I try to bring this stuff up early on in sessions so that I don't find myself not having that information. But I try to, as quickly as possible, consider the things that that we're working on and the things that could be helpful and try to work them through. Now, that could be like, again, like like your therapist did, like touching you on the back and, and having some like mantras that I would repeat, maybe things that we've worked on or things that I've we've talked about before or some phrases you've said have been helpful. Like I'm just pulling on the information that I know about our relationship to help better soothe. Now, in some cases, my patients don't want to be touched and they want me just to give them time to come back. And so I'm quiet. And then I might say, you know, let's say their name is Lily. I'll say, Lily, I'm still here. Are you able to talk? How are we doing? You know, and then I'll check in in a few more minutes and say something else. So it just depends on the patient and it depends on what they're comfortable with because everybody's different. But um, that's really what I think about is I'm trying to rack my brain or go, hopefully, I'm going to my notes where I have kind of like our our list of things that are okay and not okay. Cause I take, I still take old school notes. Um, or maybe we have like a panic attack safety plan. I've put those together in the past with my patients who have uh, panic attacks frequently. There could be all sorts of different things. And if I don't know that information, I'm thinking shit, shit, shit. And I'm trying to come up with some different things and different ways I can help. Um, yeah. I mean, I know that I wish there was a better answer, but it's just me trying to find the best way to help with the information that I have so that I don't overwhelm you because I don't want to make it worse. Um, And that's my biggest concern usually. And making it worse, I find there's a higher likelihood of me making it worse by trying to do something. And so sometimes if I don't know, let's say it's our first session together and I don't know you very well, I'll probably sit quietly and just say your name a couple of times, try to bring you back. I'm here. It's okay. I know things feel overwhelming. You're going to be okay. Try to breathe with me. I might breathe out loud. I've done that with patients in the past. Like I'm just going to breathe. And if you want to breathe along, that's great. And I'll count two, three, you know, and I'll do that. Um, There can be lots of different things that I'll do, but that's what's going through my head when that's happening. And are you able to see it coming on? If I know the patient well enough, um, and if I do see it kind of coming on or notice them doing the kind of like space out or get really agitated just depends on how it it like shows itself with that patient. Then I'm going to try to use other tools. I'm going to be like, Hey, do you want to shake out with me real quick? Or do you want to tell me what's going on? Can we breathe? Do you want to close your eyes for a minute? Like whatever, again, that would be like part of our safety plan and part of the way that we would better manage. And I would try to do that as quickly as possible so that we could maybe uh, like stop it from happening. Um, and does it give you any helpful information? It could because I, about the, what triggered it. Like for you, it was very clear. You're talking about a really scary situation. It sounds like, um, yeah. And it was too much. So that was the trigger. But I, you know, if it wasn't as clear and direct as that, it would give us helpful information. And we could probably dig into it later to try to learn more about what you thought of or what came up or what we think caused it. 
It could even not be the session itself. It could have been what happened the day before or before you got into a session, you know, things like that. Um, So yeah, it can be really helpful, but it's not necessary. Um, You know, it's not like we have to have it happen in session for a therapist to believe us or for them to be able to gather helpful information, but that there is a side effect of that, that it could be helpful. Um, And the last question, why do I remember this event clearly as the day? Trauma memories can be like that where we... And I know people are like, but I don't remember anything. Trauma memories are weird, right? I have a whole chapter in my book. I had to do a shitload of research about trauma memories. And there's a lot of hypotheses and some stuff is proven, some stuff isn't. And there's a lot of people who disagree with each other. It's very complicated. But we do know that trauma memories are just different. They believe they're even stored in a different part of the brain. And I think that we kind of, um, for most of us, we either remember every detail about the thing that happened, that event that was scary, or we remember nothing. I I know for some people it's like flashes and stuff like that, but again, trauma memories are weird. And in your case, the reason you remember it so clearly is because it was so impactful. And I would argue that this might not have been um, like a traumatizing situation, but it was definitely scary. But I think there was a component of it of healing where your therapist was there to help you through it. And that Um, could have triggered some attachment stuff. Maybe we had like fear of abandonment in the past or not healthy attachment with our parents. We might not even have had that. But either way, like it solidified that relationship with our therapist. And I think that is probably why we remember all of the details because it was was scary and overwhelming, but someone was there to support us. And it's almost like we had a traumatizing thing happen, but the outcome was different. And I think that that's why that memory is so, so clear and vivid in your mind. Um, But for a lot of people, we remember trauma memories really vividly and clearly too. Uh, Again, everybody is different, but that could be why, you know? Um, And I even, I have weird things too, where like if I have situations, not even scary, just like certain events or things that happened that are like bigger deals, I'll remember what I was wearing and like exact, I'll remember weird things about the experience and the day or the person or things like that. Um, So yeah, memories, memories are interesting, but I think that's probably why it's so clearly formed for you. And if you want more information about trauma memories, like I said, my, my book traumatized, I have a whole chapter, I think it's like chapter four or five all about trauma memories. And it's really fascinating. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie, can you talk about the link between anxiety and dissociation? Of course, you've talked about pulling the ripcord, but I still find it peculiar that I can go from being very anxious to dissociated in a short period of time, since these feel like very different reactions. I also feel as if my anxiety only became an issue when I stopped dissociating frequently. Interesting. My therapist, however, thinks that I may have always been anxious, but just didn't realize it in the past. Interesting. Now, the correlation between anxiety and dissociation kind of goes back to why dissociation happens. Now, dissociation happens when our nervous system gets overwhelmed. Now, your level of what would be overwhelming and my level, it's going to be different, but it doesn't really matter. When we've reached whatever that peak of it is, boom, our brain pulls that ripcord and it can also cause panic attacks. It can be just shut down. That dissociation is incredibly common, but you have to think about it's, it's system overwhelm. So your anxiety builds to a point where your nervous system is like, 
oh my God, this is too much. Your your stress response, meaning your like limbic system, which houses your amygdala, is like firing. It's sounding the alarm and it's sending us into fight, flight, freeze. Well, oftentimes when anxiety doesn't have a trigger and there's nothing we can run from or fight, we just feel overwhelmed and fucking anxious. Boom, ripcord pulled. Because fight and flight, not an option. What's the one we can go into? Freeze. So we freeze which is where dissociation occurs. And so that's really the correlation. It's all about our nervous system becoming overwhelmed. And that level of overwhelm is going to differ because everyone has a different level of resilience um, or and different amount of coping skills, which is part of our resilience, right? And so that's really why that happens. Um, now, you said you feel as if your anxiety only became an issue when you stopped dissociating. I, I agree with your therapist. I think you always had anxiety. You just never noticed it probably because you were just dissociating. I would assume your level of resilience has increased over the years. So you feel the anxiety for longer. Whereas before it was like anxious, dissociated, feel anxious, dissociate. Like boom, boom, boom. There was like almost no window. So you probably didn't even identify that it was anxiety that could have been triggering it, if that makes sense. Now there was a comment on this. It says, this is how I feel. My therapist and I are working on slowing down the dissociation, but I find that I use my unhealthy coping skills more than Oh, so like you're using them more now. I know I need to use these better coping skills, but since dissociation has been my go-to for so long, anything else feels overwhelming. What are some other techniques for those panic moments outside of deep breathing to quickly ground me without dissociating? I'm also not sure how to bring up that I'm using these bad coping skills when I don't dissociate, like my eating disorder, which we've never talked about without feeling like a failure or complaining. Okay, this is a great question. Now, it's normal when we're trying, because dissociation is a coping skill, right? We're just trading one for the other. What this tells me is that it, it's hard as a therapist. I'm not knocking your therapist at all. But what this tells me is that we haven't worked on the root issue. You have no ways to deal with your overwhelm. We're just taking away a coping skill. We're like, let's stop dissociating. You're like, great, now what? And so all your other issues, all the other coping skills are coming up. And so we really need, like you said, you, you know that you need better coping skills, like healthy coping skills. We need to practice those before we try to stop using one of our unhealthy ones. I'm not saying that I give you free reign to use your unhealthy coping skills. I'm saying you need to tell your therapist that you're finding these other ones coming up. I know you haven't talked about your eating disorder before. That's okay. It's very common. You could even just say like, I know I haven't brought this up before, but because I'm not doing this, I find this getting worse. You know, therapists, we're always learning new information. I have patients I've seen for a long time that didn't even tell me like, oh, by the way, I like get blackout drunk like five nights a week. I'm like, what? You People hide things from their therapists all the time. We're not going to be offended. It's part of the process. And so now that this is coming up, it's an opportunity, if you feel comfortable, to share that. Um, so my homework for you is you can watch that 25 coping skills video um, or, you know, ask your, if your therapist is giving you a list, you can pull from that try these out. Pick pick five and make sure they're a mix of process and distraction-based, meaning a process-based coping skill will be something like talking to a friend or journaling or using an impulse log or something like that. And then a distraction-based would be like going for a walk, a cleaning part of your home, or I don't know, showering, something like that, right? Those are just distracting us and those help us process what we're going through. So I want you to have a mix of both. So maybe five to six and give them a try right now, like today. We don't want to try them out 
only when we need them. We want to try them out ahead of time and just notice like, hey, did I get totally lost in coloring in that coloring book or journaling? Or did I, was it good for me just to go for a walk around the block? Did that like get me out of this like funk and stop me from, you know, dissociating or wanting to use my eating disorder? Like find some coping skills that work, try them out. If they don't work, toss them. That one doesn't work. Go on to the next one. That's why that video, not only do I share 24 spoilers, I say 25, but that's because I asked everybody to put them in the comments below. So I offer 24 and the comments are filled with other ideas. Give them a try and do not stop trying them. Every day, at least try one, hopefully maybe two because we want to get through this. But until don't stop until you have at least five that you can do, three of which I need them to be available to you 24-7. So if we have a real shit time at three in the morning, I want you to be able to use that coping skill. I know you're like, Katie, that's a tall order. But trust me when I tell you, I've done it with a zillion patients and talked to a zillion people online about it. And we can always come up with some. So put that list together. Let's try those out because we're going to need to really hang on to those while we grapple with all these other urges that are going to come up as we do that hard therapeutic work. Okay. Now there was a comment on this and it says, yes, I was wondering if anxiety could cause dissociation also. Yes, it can. I had a pretty severe dissociative episode at school the other day, so bad that I can't remember anything except for calling my therapist. Could it have been anxiety? Yes, it could have. I can't think of another reason, and my anxiety has been off the ropes recently, so my gut just says anxiety. But I'm not sure if this was related. Apologies if it isn't. Totally related. I feel like we answered that, but I just wanted to add it in to let that person know. I saw you. I heard from you. And hopefully you got your answer in there, because yes, anxiety can cause that overwhelm that leads to dissociation. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, how do you deal with negative or unwanted reactions from others when you show symptoms of anxiety? Hmm. For example, with social anxiety, when you get feedback at work or school and people say you should have practiced your talk better. Oh, God, why do people offer feedback that you don't want? I hate unwelcome feedback. Practice your talk better because you were too nervous. I'm so sorry. Or when you meet someone new and you struggle to talk and people make a big deal out of it, telling you that it's okay. Don't worry. You don't need to stress yourself out. I'm just trying to live my life despite anxiety, but people's reactions sometimes make me not want to try anymore. Ugh. Um, I guess a couple of things as much as possible. First of all, I'm proud of you for pushing through and trying anyways. You keep doing what you're doing. We're going to like going back to the, the things I've kind of said throughout this pod. I want you to you know, come up with some coping skills that help are helpful for you. That's going to be really important. I think practicing, you know, using them so you have ways to self-soothe is going to be key and keep doing, you know, challenging yourself. But here, here's a part of it that mm, is going to be uncomfortable, but can be really helpful. Pick a couple of people in your life, maybe a, a teacher that you're close to, or maybe we have one friend at school that you're really close with. If you have more, that's fine. But I'm just saying, pick a couple people, maybe a teacher and another a friend and let them know of what you're working on. You don't have to tell them that much information. You can just say, hey, you know, I'm really struggling with social anxiety. So um, even if you see me have a tough time giving a talk or getting nervous around people, can you not bring it up? Because it makes me more anxious. You can just be like, it's like a snowball effect. And then I'm judging myself and I'm afraid you're judging me. You know, um, and be like, I just know that I'm aware and I'm working on it. Sometimes people just want us to, to like know that they acknowledge. I don't know. I don't know why people do this. I, I think, I don't think it's done with any malicious intent. It's just, they don't realize how hurtful it can be. So let some people know, because the great thing about having one of those people is like, let's say I'm that friend that you told. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. 
I didn't even think about it. I should never have said anything about your talk. And you're like, don't worry about it. Blah, blah, blah. We, we figure it out. It's fine. Flash forward two weeks. We have another presentation at school. And I overhear someone telling you that you should have practiced more because you sounded nervous. Then I, as the not anxious person, person can butt in and be like, hey, uh, you know, Lucy, that, she, she's doing great. Don't you know what it's like to feel anxious? Let's not talk about it. Like I can move it along. I can shut it down. Or if somebody says something to me and you're not present, I can say like, hey, she's like working on it, dude. Like stop mentioning that. that's really rude, right? I can shut things down or I can make comments or I can stand up for you. I think that's what friends are for. Um, also, teachers can shut things down if they hear something like that happening. I know we don't like I was a kid once, too. I haven't forgotten I know people think that when people get old, they like forget, but we didn't forget. We just, uh, we have other, we have bigger fish to fry now, but I didn't forget what it's like to have a teacher stand up for you. And that can be kind of embarrassing sometimes, but I found by high school, I actually loved my teachers and like, they were kind of like part, not part of our group. Cause that's not true, but they were just like part of my experience. And it was nice to have them to talk to. Sometimes I had a couple really good teachers that I talked to, like my English teacher and my journalism teacher. They were both really great. Um, yeah, and a lot of my coaches. So anyways, having those people that have your back can be really helpful. And it also gives you a place to talk about things before or after if something stressful is coming up. But again, those coping skills are going to be key because you're doing all the work. We just need you to find ways to calm your system down before and after things. And then we need some other people to be supportive. And if you feel comfortable, I'd assume you don't. But if someone else out there is like, well, I, but those people aren't like my close friends. So maybe I should just tell them consider it and let's practice what we want to say. If we're going to tell someone we're not that close with, let's do like two bullet points. Like, hey, thanks for the feedback, right? We're going to hug and roll these people. Thanks for the feedback because they're like giving you feedback you don't want, which is horrible. Thanks for the feedback. However, you know, I've been working on social anxiety for a little while now and sometimes it gets the better of me. So like essentially thanks, but no thanks. So we'll say like, I've been working on it. Um, So yeah, just know that I know and you don't have to tell me about it hug and roll. Essentially, don't talk to me anymore. That's not helpful. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to question number eight. This question says, hi, Katie. What about the anxiety before falling asleep? Ugh, the worst. I do need to take sleeping pills because my mind won't stop racing and thinking about stuff, not always sad and bad, but still unable to just fall asleep. I do have quiet BPD for uh, quite some time now, Um, and I'm unable to rest. Okay. So if you don't know what quiet BPD is, quiet BPD is essentially a lot of people think of borderline personality disorder, otherwise known as BPD. They'll think of it as like a, a, a people who lash out or impulsive, like outward action. Um, but quiet BPD is essentially when instead of it being outward, we take all that upset and that worry and that fear of abandonment and the impulsivity and uh, struggles with sense of self and we turn it in. So this can lead to intensive depressive episodes and suicidal thoughts, not to mention self-injury of many forms, binge eating, binge shopping, all sorts of things like that. So quiet BPD um, that's what, that's what this person's talking about, just so that we're all on the same page. Now, um, anxiety before sleep, there's a couple of things. Now, sleeping pills are fine if those are prescribed and you feel safe with them. I personally, you know, am very cautious of my patients having those and always, you know, talk with your doctor, blah, all that stuff, blah, blah. But I'll assume we don't have any worries of overdosing. Everything is safe. We have a doc, their doctor prescribed, you know, all that yada, yada stuff. Um, But before going to sleep, I have a video actually, I think it's like 
it's it's years old. I should probably read. I feel like all the videos need to be redone now, but that's just me. Um, it's like four ways to better sleep. Just look up better sleep Katie Morton on YouTube. It should come up. Um, anyway, there's some basic like cognitive behavioral or CBT based tools that we can do to help us better manage getting to sleep. And here's a couple because I have anxiety about going to bed. Like my anxiety gets higher before sleep all the time. I don't know why. It's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then I like brush my teeth and all of a sudden I'm like, (sighs) start to feel anxious for no reason. Um, so God love it. And then you think through all the shit you've ever said and done that didn't go well in your whole entire life. Isn't that amazing? Um, but something that I do that can be helpful is number one, I have a routine and a ritual around bedtime. So I do the same things almost every night. Now I know for traveling or, the, but I'm talking like as much with, with as much regularity as you can try to go to bed within the same hour. Give yourself like an hour window. We're not like trains. We're not always on schedule, but try to go to bed around the same time and have a ritual about it. So if that ritual is like, oh, I turn off the TV and then I don't know. I blow out the candle that I had on because I have a candle lit right now. I'm just running through random things. Um, I wash my face. I brush my teeth. I put my lotion on. And then, you know, I lay down. I um, put I put any notes or thoughts. I have a thing that I need to do into my notes on my phone. Or maybe I write them down on a pad of paper by my bed. Those are both very helpful things. Um, you know, and I shut the lights out and I do not look at my phone, right? We need to have, or maybe it's like 30 minutes before bed, I, I put my phone down and turn it off or put it into do not disturb. Um, you know, I go around the house, I check all the locks and the doors, and then I get ready, you know, whatever it is, we need to have a little ritual, put that short ritual together. Maybe you shower before bed, a lot of like Sean likes to shower before bed, maybe that's your thing. Have a ritual. It's almost like we do that with children a lot where we get, we have like babies, because <laughs> I was a nanny and a babysitter. I don't have children on my own, I'm not pretending to be a parent. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I did nanny and babysit for a long time. We always have rituals for our little kids, right? We, or at least the way that I nannied and babysat is I would let them know, Hey, it's almost bedtime. And they always like, I don't want to go to bed. Blah, 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 blah. I don't, you know, they fight it. And I'm like, as an adult, I would welcome the bedtime. Um, I tell them, I let them know after this, you get one more cartoon or one more whatever. And then we got to go to bed. And then I'm like, I get them in the bath and then I, I clean them up. You know, we put them in their PJs and then, you know, we read two stories and then night lights out, you know, so there's like a ritual around what we do. Um, it helps prepare our brain for sleep. And as we, the ritual at first, it's not like overnight, it's gonna be like amazing. But as we do it over and over again, our body will get quicker at falling asleep um, because it knows it's coming. One thing I learned recently, I was reading, sometimes I go down these like rabbit holes of research and then I end up somewhere and I'm like, I don't even know how I got here. But I was reading that melatonin isn't helpful for sleep. Didn't know it. Have told you guys over the past years that it could be helpful. Uh, turns out it's actually not. Um, and maybe it was my friend Ben, who's a neuroscientist that was telling me. But anyways, um, if you don't know who Ben Rain is, check him out. Uh, ben, R-E-I-N, I think is his last name. Amazing. He, again, is a neuroscientist out of Stanford. Couldn't he couldn't like him more. So helpful with what he shares. Um, anyways, melatonin doesn't work. L-theanine and magnesium do. Obviously talk to your doctor. I'm not a doctor, um, but those are things that could actually help you with your sleep and wake. And those are more natural and not, you know, not that there's anything wrong with sleeping pills. I just always get nervous, especially with my patients who have any suicidal thoughts. So that's really it. Also, another tip of something that I do, I do full body shakes sometimes in bed, like flop around like a fish. It's usually before Sean's in bed because that's kind of embarrassing. But if I just find myself ruminating and my mind is going, um, I'll like 
get out of bed and shake, or if I'm too tired, I'll just kind of flop around. And that helps. I know it sounds silly, but it regulates our nervous system. It's like you're forcing that regulation. And then the final tip I have is the ruminating thoughts. I force myself into, this is my new one. So feel free to steal my idea. I, I force myself into good dreams. And the dreams aren't like, I don't know, like things that couldn't happen. It's like vacations I want to take or things I want to do. And so lately I've been dreaming that Sean and I are going to Hawaii, which we've never been to together. We're on a plane and we're going to Hawaii and we get into our hotel and like I tell myself everything, the smell, it's like kind of damp because Hawaii is always raining. That's how it's so lush and beautiful, but it's like warm and I hear the, the parrots and I tell myself this story like as if it's happening and then I fall asleep and I'm in Hawaii. It's beautiful, beautiful. So give that a try and see if that helps. Okay. Final question, question number nine. Oh, and also if you have any tips for helping fall asleep when you're anxious, leave them in the comments. Now, question nine says, hi, Katie, thank you so much for all that you do. Of course, thank you for your support and for sending in your question. It says, I end up getting physically ill if I experience too much anxiety. It hasn't happened in a while because I've started seeing a therapist. That's amazing. And I've been working on CBT. But if I reach that point, I can't help but throw up. I've thrown up all over myself by accident and I've thrown up on my dashboard. It just happens. Again, it hasn't happened in a while, but I'm always scared it's going to happen again the next time something big happens in my life. How can I keep my stomach calm in these situations? I love this question because this can apply to a lot of things like panic attacks, um, fainting. Lots of people are worried about fainting. Um, You know, the dissociation, shutting down, any of these things. My advice for this is do some research now. Be a detective on the past times that you have Uh, thrown up without warning and notice how you think about how you felt in your body and in your mind how what was your emotional experience what was your physical experience what happened and what led up to it because what we need to identify are those triggers and those signs and symptoms earlier on the earlier the better ideally like the day i mean ideally we'd notice it before it got this bad but ideally like two hours before we could potentially just throw up so that we can do something about it. We can use some of those coping skills to calm our system down because what's happening is instead of like dissociating or having a panic attack, like other people might experience, you're throwing up. And a lot of people don't realize the connection between our belly and our brain. Um, you can look up uh, what's it called? Lizard brain, but it's essentially like at the bare bones of who we are, our brain and stomach are so closely linked. Like if I get really nervous, my stomach's like like churning, right? And I think a lot of people experience that. I've had people say they get diarrhea, feel nauseous. That's very common because there's this direct connection. And so that's why this is happening for you. But what we need to do, identify our core triggers, which you might be already doing in CBT, but maybe not. Identifying those core triggers and having some different coping skills and ways to calm your system down, like uh, you can check out my video and pull those or other things that have worked that you're using for other purposes with your therapist, but full body shakes could be something. Um, Even I I used to any kind of movement, if you want to like dance to a song or if you want to jump up and down or... If you want to do a little exercise or whatever, walk around the block, any kind of movement can help. I find body shakes a little more effective than walking, but that might just be me. Um, Journaling, talking to a friend, calling your therapist, whatever. Maybe it's a distraction coping skill. We're going to need to find some way to 
to calm our system down so that it doesn't get to that place. And so doing that kind of research and being a detective can give us more information so that we can prevent it from happening again, right? We need to kind of notice what the triggers were, notice how we felt in our body like before, you know, an hour or two before that happened. And you can start with right before it happened and like work backwards or whatever's easiest. We just need to use the information we already have to figure out how to stop it. Because it didn't happen for no reason. It happened because we got overwhelmed in our system. That's how our system reacts. We now know that. So what can we do instead? And the sooner we can do those things, the better. Because yeah, that's all we can do. And if it happens again, I know it sucks. It's not something we want to happen. But that doesn't mean all is lost. That gives us more information so that we can use different coping skills or try something else out. And again, you can try these coping skills and please try these coping skills before you need them to make sure that they at least feel a little bit calming now. Um, Because if they don't at least feel good now, they're not going to feel good in the moment and they're not going to be helpful. So try different ones out until you find some that work and we'll get you to a place where you can't even remember the last time it happened. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Like I said, it helps so much to share this video, tell a friend about it, put it on your socials, leave a review. All that stuff is incredibly, incredibly helpful, especially May is mental health month. So we got to, you know, might as well drive through good information, break through the stigma and keep talking about it because it's all we know how important it is. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. I'll see you next week. Bye. You can ask her about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always 